Now, I do realize that whenever I use a clip from the Harry Potter movies, I am taking, um, well, at least my afternoon into my, my own hands kind of uh, very carefully. Because there have been a, a few occasions uh, where I've tried to use clips from Harry Potter to be an example of something, and I've heard about it later from all of you who know Harry Potter far better than I do. So please forgive me in advance for all of the ways that I will butcher this, but we're going we're gonna to do my best. Um, so in this scene... You see, uh, obviously, Harry, who has been living his life with the Dursleys, his aunt and uncle. Now, he has been, for all intents and purposes, treated as a second-class citizen this entire time. They've worked hard not to let Harry know his true identity, that he's a wizard, the, the son of powerful wizards. And they've done a pretty good job, to the point that he has no idea, as, as Hagrid talks to him about things that he assumes would be normal, Hogwarts, being a wizard, he, he has no idea what he's talking about. He doesn't identify with that. That's not who he understands himself to be. But it's at this moment when Harry suddenly understands who he is, who he really is, who his parents are, what he's actually a part of, that he begins on the journey of ultimately becoming who he was intended to be. But he has to be freed. He has to be freed by recognizing who he is, what his identity is. Well, we are continuing in a series that we're calling Free at Last. We've been looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians that you find in the New Testament. Uh, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to be reading along with us. We're kind of picking out pieces from the letter. Uh, we don't have enough time here on a Sunday morning to kind of go verse by verse through the whole thing. Uh, but I encourage you to read along. There's a lot we don't get to. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some extras on the counter in the back. I encourage you to grab one of those, take it home as our gift to you, and to read along. You'll find Galatians kind of in the New Testament towards the back of the Bible. It's a, a short-ish letter, again, by the Apostle Paul, who's an early church leader. We're going to begin in chapter 3, verse 1. And you'll see the, the words up on the screen here in front of you. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians! Who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to the time, to this time, when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Okay, so we're going to stop there. Paul's he's continuing the, the theme that we've been looking at in this letter of encouraging these Galatians to recognize that their inclusion in God's family is not based on external factors. It's not based on these 
kind of uh, religious indicators, these ethnic indicators that they typically would use, that it's based on Christ. And he particularly in this passage begins to get at some of their, their tribal identities. Because one of the things that you come to realize if you pay attention at all is that human beings are inherently tribal creatures. Right? We, we tend to gather in tribes ever since the beginning of time. And these, these tribes tend to kind of organize themselves pragmatically around things that we have in common. So maybe early on, it was those who were you know, farmers would tend to spend time together because they, would, they had common interests, common goals. They'd help each other out. They'd work together towards the same end. And then there were the, the hunters and gatherers doing something kind of different. And so they would kind of organize together. Again, similar values, similar goals. They'd work together. Occasionally, the values of these different groups would conflict. They'd have different values that would run up against each other. And in those situations, there might be war, violence, to defend the values of your particular tribe. And on and on it goes throughout the millennia. As you look back over human history, this is just how we tend to function as human beings. We, we organize ourselves in tribes and identify ourselves by these common things, these, these common stories, these common languages. We develop common languages, even common dress, ways that we kind of recognize who's in our group and who's outside of it, who's one of us. And this isn't all inherently bad. In fact, some of it's really good. Some of it's really healthy. I mean, at its, at its very kind of base, family is a tribe, right? It's people who are together around commonality, a place where you find safety. And, and there's something really nice about having some space to speak a common language, where you don't have to work hard to explain yourself to everyone. There's something good and right about that. Many of us experience this uh, probably the most obvious place, uh, this is a, a lighter one, but probably the most obvious one would be in sports, right? I mean, sports is a very tribal experience. This is something that my wife doesn't understand at all. It just drives her crazy. She doesn't understand why all of a sudden, if I walk into a Starbucks or a restaurant and I see somebody wearing a North Carolina Tar Heels shirt, I suddenly feel this brotherhood and bond where I can just walk up to them and start talking about college basketball. Like, it doesn't make sense to her. Or why there are those who on various occasions will don their colors of a city they don't live even remotely close to, but have this strong sense of connectedness to because that team is playing that day. There's a common language, right? Like We develop these, this language that only fans of that team will get, at least fully. There's even stories, there's narratives that we understand. We, we have history, people who, you know, the, the legends of the game that we hearken back to and, and we kind of wax kind of nostalgic about, oh, when that player played back then or when that coach, those were the days, right? We, we have these stories that we're a part of. These are, these are real things. Sometimes they even erupt in violence. So a couple of years ago, um, we, we had just kind of, we're not originally from this area, my wife is, but I'm not. And so I grew up in the southeast, or spent a number of years in the southeast. And, and when I was young, that's how old I am, the southeast, we only had one baseball team. It was the Atlanta Braves. So if you lived in the southeast, you rooted for the Atlanta Braves. 
um, if you like baseball. Um, and so I kind of understood the world of the Atlanta Braves and baseball, but I didn't quite get the Phillies kind of perspective on the baseball world. When we moved here, uh, a friend of ours had season tickets and had invited me to kind of use the season tickets to take my son Joshua to a game. And it happened to be, this is when the Phillies were like good, um, and so it happened to be uh, a Phillies-Mets game. And uh, I really, I know, it's, it's hard to remember, but um, <laughs> this is going to get me into a lot of trouble later. But um, so it was a Phillies-Mets game, and if you know anything about the Phillies and Mets, they tend to not like each other very much. So I took my son, innocently, uh, didn't have any Phillies gear, so I think I was wearing a Braves hat. I had a Braves hat on him, um, which that wasn't particularly wise, but because they were playing the Mets, it didn't matter. Um, so we walked in, and it's a packed stadium. And if you've ever been to a, a game, to a, a, a professional athletic event, you know that many of the people do a little what we call pre-gaming before, and so they come kind of already excited about what's going to happen. And uh, so there were a number of very excited people around us, and they were wearing their tribe's colors, right? So there's mostly Phillies fans, but because we were kind of in the cheaper section, there were a, a lot of Mets fans around us, too, wearing their colors. And after a while, it was a close game, and, and the farther along the game we got, the more they started kind of jawing at each other. And there were a couple of guys who were yelling, and, and of course, for some reason, they hire, um, like, very elderly, retired people to, to be ushers in these games, to kind of keep the peace, right? And so every once in a while, they'd kind of make their way out and ask the men to quiet down, and then they'd disappear again. Um, meanwhile, I'm trying to figure out, like, how do I protect the ushers if something goes down? Um, and at one point, we like, I remember, we, it wasn't anywhere near us, but we looked across to, to right field, and I was like, Josh, Josh, check it out. And you kind of hear, you know, all of a sudden there's some, some noise in the background. You look over, and there's just, there's a scuffle that has broken out. This, this Mets fan and this Phillies fan have just started wailing on each other. And of course, there's like seven ushers trying to kind of separate them and getting tossed around in the process. Eventually, they're able to kind of get these guys out of there and things return to normal. Now, if you're not someone who gets into sports at all, to you, you're just like, how, how ridiculous is that? But this is actually a thing, right? Like, we develop this tribal identity, this sense of loyalty, and, and when someone starts coming against that, those ideas, those deep-seated beliefs we get offended, and we have to defend our tribe. I know, silly, but it's real. And we experience this, of course, in all sorts of other areas that are you know, far more important, more consequential anyway. Right? I, politics is an easy one. Politics is very tribal. We have this very clear sense of we identify with this people. We, we have particular colors that we associate with our tribe. There's, there's catchphrases, there's language that we use. That if you're in our tribe, you know what that means. And if you're not in our tribe, you might have opinions about what that means, and it may or may not be accurate. But these are, this is language we've developed. We have stories, lore, that, that we kind of tell each other. We remember the good old days, or we look to the future, and we, we talk about the ways these particular people have impacted our tribe and, and our hopes and dreams. Politics is really tribal. So is ethnicity, the way we identify with people of the culture that we're from. Religion can be this way. And then a, a slew of other things. Maybe you're involved in a hobby. You know, maybe, maybe you're a runner or a biker or 
um, you know, your love fantasy football, all of these things, we, we can begin to develop these kind of tribes, these, these groups that we identify with. And again, it's not bad. In fact, there's some really, really good things about this, this tribe tendency. There's some great things there. There's some value there. But the problem becomes when we primarily identify with the tribe that we're a part of to the exclusion of others, then it becomes problematic. This is what Paul is beginning to get at with the people of Israel. And this is why he begins to tell them a different story. The nation of Israel would have primarily kind of identified themselves with Moses as their leader. Um, even if you're not someone who's super familiar with Scripture, uh, you're probably familiar with Moses. He's been, uh, you know, there's been a lot of movies made about Moses. Uh, Moses is the leader who brought the law to the people of Israel. After their, their 400 years of slavery at the hands of Egypt, Moses is the one who established the boundaries for the tribe. He's the one who brought the law from God to the people to say, this is, this is what it means to be an Israelite. This is what it means to be a part of this tribe, the people of God, who God loves and is for. He established the boundaries so that they understood who's in and who's not, who's with us and who's against us, who's with God and who's against God. And if, as we look at the Old Testament, which is kind of the beginning first half of Scripture, the story of Israel, it's almost impossible to understand it unless we recognize that this is a story that was given to and through a tribal people, a people who understood themselves this way and who fundamentally identified their leader as Moses, the one who gave them the law. But Paul, as he starts telling this story again to them, he goes back a little further. He kind of goes past Moses to this guy named Abraham. Now, Abraham is a fascinating story. I encourage you to read it. You can find uh, the beginning of Abraham's story in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, chapter 12. So again, if you have a Bible and you want to read that part, it's fascinating. Abraham, he starts out as Abram, but then there's a name change, but that's kind of a longer story. Um, but Abram isn't, he's not a, a part of Israel. There is no nation of Israel at this point. He's kind of this random dude who exists in what's modern-day Iraq. And God shows up to him and says, leave everything, your family, your land, your cattle, leave it all, and go to a land that I'll show you. And as you do, I'm going to bless you, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. This was kind of the the beginning of what would ultimately become the nation of Israel. This was the intent that God had for them, that they would become a tribe that would exist for the blessing of the entire world. But what got lost in translation somewhere along the way, when they began to primarily simply identify with Moses and the law, is this sense that we were a tribe who existed to receive God's blessing that our job is to figure out what it takes to position ourselves so that we can be blessed. And Paul's saying, you're missing the point. The point was never simply about becoming a tribe. It was about becoming a blessing. 
a blessing for the entire world. Paul continues, he kind of wraps up this chapter, Galatians chapter 3, um, beginning in verse 26 through 29. Listen to how he wraps it up. He says, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. So Paul is drawing kind of a direct line back to Abraham as their kind of primary, you know, the founder of the tribe, the one who defines what this tribe is to be about, and says the intent was always, yes, that you would be blessed, but so that you could be a blessing to the entire world, to everyone, not based on tribe, not designated by these external things, but rooted in this this person, this faith in the one we call Christ. These kind of external things, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, those things are no longer central. Central. They're not the primary identifiers. That's not to say they're not important. It's not to say there's no value to them. But it is to say those are no longer the ways in which we're primarily to find our identity, not in those things. And it's not just those specific things. Paul's giving specific example of examples of a broader truth. But all of these external factors, it's not that there's no value to them, but they're not the ultimate value. They're not, they're not the end game. The end game is not to define yourself over and against other people as how you're different but to recognize your role in taking the blessing of God to all people, to everyone. And this is actually why I really like the the Harry Potter kind of framework, the analogy. Because what's fascinating is you as you read the story, as you watch the movies, if you're kind of a loser like me who didn't read the books, um, I know, everyone else in my family has, so I'm like the last person, but I'm holding out. Um, <clears throat> But if you read it, you, you recognize that as Harry is kind of watched over by this family, the Dursleys, he's protected from some things. There are certain things that can't harm him. But there's so much more that he's kept from, that is withheld from him, that he's unable to experience because he's not able to identify with who he really is. And not only that, but there's so much that he has to offer to the world that he can't offer until he recognizes fundamentally who he is, what his identity is, what story he's a part of. And this is what Paul is actually saying. If you, if you read the whole chapter, again, we, we don't have time to get into this morning, but I encourage you, it's fascinating to see kind of the parallels between the story J.K. Rowling is telling and some of how Paul teases this out. He says the law was actually helpful for a while. There were some really useful things that God was doing with the law. But that wasn't the end game. The point was never simply to kind of circle you up in this tribe and just have God pour out his blessings just on you people. 
That was never the end game. The point was always that through you, all the world would be blessed. That through you, all the world would come to know who they are and hear their invitation into God's God's family, regardless of tribe, regardless of external differences. The point was always to bring a blessing to the world through this people. And so Paul's, he's kind of like pulling back the curtain to reveal kind of what's, what's always been true, but they've missed. This underlying reality of what God is doing in the world and what God wants to do in and through them. That God's always desired to bless the entire world, to welcome the all people into his family. That that is the point of Jesus, that this is what Jesus is doing. Throwing the doors open, open and inviting all people to come and to know God as they come to find life with Christ, with others. Again, Paul says, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That, that in God's family, there's no such thing as a second-class citizen. There's no such thing as a better Christian. Right? Like there, There's not levels of Christian. Even though we've done a pretty good job of creating that kind of vision of what this is like. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but... Recently, I've been thinking a lot about Senate confirmation hearings. You've probably been hearing uh, a little bit about this from time to time, right? So there, there are these people who are now going to be running the government, and they have to go through confirmation hearings. And that's a useful thing, right? Um, despite what we might think about politics aside, right, but having a system in which people who are going to run the government come through and they kind of get questions asked very pointedly about particular things, that makes sense. That works. Unfortunately, that's never really been the intent when it comes to followers of Christ. That's, there's never been a confirmation hearing set up intended, but we've kind of functioned that way sometimes. Right? Like we, we kind of have these, this kind of list of what allows someone in and, and what keeps them out. And it, it might... And maybe it's not even in or out, but maybe it's just like levels, like who's a really good like follower of Jesus, who's a really good Christian, and who's a not so good, right? And we might do it based on how much you, you read the Bible, how much you pray, whether or not you're tough, what kind of movies you watch, your music you listen to, do you come to church regularly? How do you vote on certain issues? And in some cases, that's stated explicitly from the front or from people like me or like you. But in a lot of cases, it's not. It's somehow communicated in our interactions with one another and these assumptions that, of course, we're, we're all in the same tribe. We, we, we all see the world the same way, right? And so if you don't, well, you just don't get it yet. You're not, you're not fully incorporated tribe into the family. And I know this because often people will apologize to me about not being one of these things, right? Like, well, I know that I'm supposed to is usually how that starts. And generally, while 
they might be good things, right? Like, I know I'm supposed to be praying, but, well, yeah, praying is a good thing. I, I want you to pray. There's a lot of great reasons why you should be praying. Guilt and shame are not among them. But, but we build these kind of, these, these vetting processes by which we determine who's a, who's a second-class citizen and who's the real deal. But the thing is, that's not really a, not an ex- exclusively a church thing. Again, this is kind of a human thing. We all do this. You know, maybe it's not based on kind of faith, like whether someone prays, whether they read scripture. But it might be based on how attractive are they? How successful are they? Politics seems to transcend most of this, so do they agree with me politically? Do they not? Are they kind of the same place I am socioeconomically or not? Again, this, this tribal thing is just kind of part of what it means to be human. And while there can be some great things in that, when we primarily find our identity in our tribe, it creates division, it excludes people, and it's the opposite of what God is doing in Jesus. In Christ, God is calling people to come near, not creating hoops for them to jump through or holding people at arm's length. Paul says no more do these external factors determine who is welcome into the family and who is not. But it's the the internal work of Christ in the lives of people bringing transformation as we learn what it means to follow him together. This is actually the kind of the core understanding of the gospel that drove Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to fight for equality, to call for us to push past tribal differences, to call for unity. If you listen closely to the I Have a Dream speech, this this infamous speech, it's deeply rooted in this call to get rid of these tribal differences. One particular portion at the very end probably sound familiar. King said, when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. And it's easy to just kind of assume as we read that, that the freedom that King is calling for is a freedom from, right? Freedom from oppression, uh, freedom from the barriers that are kind of set up against people of color. And that's part of it. But it's deeper than that. What King was calling for was a freedom to. A freedom to be fully human, to recognize the equality of all people. And what drove him to this understanding was his rootedness in the gospel. In Paul's call to recognize that in Christ, these divisions, they're not ultimate. They're not insignificant, but they're not ultimate. 
that ultimately all people are welcomed in through Christ to the family of God. Rosa Parks, another prominent figure in the civil rights movement, you probably know her story. Uh, after a, a long day of work, seated on a bus, the, the bus driver asked Miss Parks and three other um, black individuals to move so that one white man could have a seat. Uh, the three others uh, complied. Rosa did not. Miss Parks did not. And she ended up being arrested. Uh, this sparked the Montgomery bus boycott, which was the kind of one event that thrust Martin Luther King Jr. onto the national stage. Later, when Parks was being asked about her involvement, she said this about how she would like to be remembered. She said, I would like to be remembered as a person who wanted to be free so other people could also be free. Someone who wanted to be free so that others could also be free. See, that's not, that's not tribal mentality. Tribal mentality says that in order for me to win, you have to lose. In order for my side to get what's good for us, somebody else has to, has to come up short. But that's tribal mentality. The gospel that Paul preaches says that all of us are welcomed in because of grace. Not because of what we do. Not because... You're a super good Christian, not because you've memorized lots of Bible verses or you pray a ton. You are welcomed in through Christ because of Christ. It's grace. It's a gift. It's nothing that, that you've earned, nothing that you can kind of score higher on. There's not levels. All are welcome to come. And yes, all of us are, are messed up and we have things that we need to grow in. We have ways that if we want to be fully ourselves, fully alive, that, that we need to allow God to work in, to change. To, we're not hopefully going to be the same that we are now. But that's, that's not what welcomes you into God's family. It never has been. It's, it's grace, it's a gift that in Christ all are invited into God's family. That's kind of the fundamental, that's the root of the identity for the follower of Jesus. These other things aren't, they aren't insignificant. They matter, but they're not primary. They're not ultimate. That ultimately our identity is one who is welcomed into God's family through Christ and who was sent out to be a blessing to the world, inviting others to come and find their place in God's family as well. This is, this is Paul's message. This is what it means to be someone who is rooted in Jesus. And it's not just good for us. It's, it's good for the world. So I would invite you this week, as you spend some time reflecting, to think about a couple of things. The first of all would just be, what tribe do you tend to affiliate yourself with? What are the tribes you're a part of? Again, not inherently negative, but just to take some time to reflect on, yeah, what are my tribes? What are the places where I tend to kind of root myself and, 
identify with people? Where are those? And do any of them set you up and against other people? Do any of those tribes create division between you and others? And if so, how might Paul's argument that all are included in God's family through Christ shape how you view those tribal affiliations? Is there any way in which God might be inviting you to step outside of those to welcome others in? 